Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. Thank you for coming by today. On Sunday, July 17th, 1966, a horrible triple murder took place in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Folks, that's just a hop, skip, and a jump south of Asheville. I'm telling you this up front because that's where the whole thing started for investigators. Even to this day, folks around them parts still hadn't forgot about the murders of Vernon Shipman, Charles Glass, and Louise Davis Shoemaker. So come on in, take your shoes off, and set a spell. Let me tell you about another example of uh, what people can do to each other. When Charles Hill and Larry Shipman went to work on Friday, July 22, 1966, they had no idea that they'd end up coming across three bodies in a clearing near Lake Summit. Mr. Shipman was first thought that he saw a mannequin. Now, we all know it's never a mannequin, don't we? Or we wouldn't be here. They were on a dirt road off of North Lake Summit Road near a spot where people dumped their trash. They was getting ready to dump a load of limbs and brush after they'd cleared it off for the Lake Summit Corporation. They were shocked to find out that what they were looking at weren't mannequins at all. They were Vernon Shipman, Charles Glass, and Louise Davis Shoemaker who had been beaten to death five days before. All three victims suffered head wounds, and in addition to that, Mr. Glass and Miss Shoemate had stab wounds around their chest and necks. In fact, Mr. Glass had 21, and Miss Shoemate had 17. I guess Mr. Shipman didn't require the extra attention that the other two did from the killer. The odd thing about it was that the bodies were laid out in a semicircle. The men were fully clothed, but Miss Shoemate's body being partly nude and showed cleared signs of sexual assault. Mr. Shipman had an 18-inch long piece of scrap iron laying across his neck. Mr. Glass's crutches were laid out over his body in the shape of a cross, while an empty whiskey bottle was leaned against Miss Shoemate's neck. On the ground near the bodies, they found Louise Shoemate's prescription glasses, her change purse, along with Charles' glasses and Vernon Shipman's wallets. Vernon and Charles were well known in the community. Vernon owned Tempo Music Shop on Main Street, the place where everybody in town went to buy their records. Charles managed the store for Vernon. Now, for folks who may be a bit younger than I am, in short, a record is a flat, round piece of plastic that you put on a turntable and you lay an arm on top of it to play your music. 
Still yet, hard to beat the sound of music being played on a record player. Well, at least for me it is anyway. Now, nobody knew the connection to Louise, who had, that, that she had to the men. She was a 61-year-old factory worker from Asheville who kept to herself and, to best anybody's knowledge, rarely even stuck her head out the window and maybe even go out of the house except to go to work and come home. But it just rarely that that happened. Now, just after the murder scene was discovered, the news media from across the nation rushed to Hendersonville like it was on fire so they could report from the scene. Even 40-some years later, Court TV made an episode of Haunted Evidence where they sent a couple of psychics to the scene just to see what they could come up with on the case. I guess with all the suspects and most law enforcement officers who were involved in the case now dead, and with evidence missing, and... uh, few, if any, records still left from 1966, they figured that uh, there'd be about as good an effort at figuring out the case as anybody else that, that could be done at the time. It was a different time in our country back in 1966. So, Vernon was 43 at the time he was murdered and worked for the North Carolina Employment Security Commission. He had co-founded Tempo Music Shop with his friend Charles. Vernon described uh, as a quiet and easygoing man who loved to cook where he would have as many as 20 people over for Sunday dinner. Now, I don't know if it's just an Appalachian thing or not, but Sunday dinners were a big part of my upbringing, and I still like to get in the middle of them. Not so much in the cleaning up part, but, uh, you know, the eating part. That's the part I like. Vernon was a 1944 graduate of Hendersonville High School, and he took a job in 1950s with the Employment Commission, for he was considered a hard-working employee who did very well at his job. Vernon was close to his family, who'd been in Henderson County since the 1790s. He met Charles in the late 1940s, or maybe in the early 50s. Nobody was really sure about that. They first opened a restaurant for a bit, then, for whatever reason, opened Tempo Music. Now, if I had guessed, the reason was probably because working in food service is an outright pain in the rear and uh, pretty hard work, if I remember right. Now, Charles was 36 when he was killed, loved music, and he loved managing the record store. Uh, customers always said that Charles was outgoing and friendly, and he liked talking to about anybody that came in the store. It was a different time in our country, like I said, in 1966. I know because I remember it well. Now, the reason I say that is because Vernon and Charles were gay. That caused some of the ugliest rumors that anybody could come up with to start going through the town like a dose of salt. And police did get a report of Vernon and Charles missing before their bodies were ever found, but a retired policeman said that with them being, quote, homosexuals and all, we thought that they were probably off partying somewhere. Sounds to me like it's more in the neighborhood of we don't care who they because of who they are. But who am I to judge? The former SBI agent who worked the case said that that glass feller had relationships with every prominent man all over Asheville and Hendersonville. From what I would gather, or could gather, that was supposed to mean that there were so many people that he'd been with that they didn't know where to start or Funny who'd even call a suspect, but Charles loved the blues and rock. He even wallpapered his bathroom in that King Cole album cover, and he was an excellent performer, too. He was the opening act for people like Esther Phillips. You may have heard of her if you're around my age. 
might have heard her called Little Esther. He recorded his own album back when he lived in Baltimore in the 1940s and recorded at least two records with Vernon at WHKP Studio in 1950s. One of the songs he recorded when was one that he wrote called, of, well, of all things, folks, Screaming and Dying, about a man who kills his cheating lover. The song was released nationwide and written up in Cashbox Magazine, as a matter of fact, which is as big as being written up in Billboard today. It was described as a up-and-coming with a hit potential. Now, Charles wasn't any stranger to party either. He was known to throw some granddaddies right in his own house to the tune of about a hundred people or so. He liked to go clubbing too, and it was, was while he was cutting up a rug that he managed to snap his left leg below the knee. That would be why he had crutches with him when he was murdered. Charles moved <clears throat> or named his house and property Hong Kong Hill because he was into Asian culture. He collected Asian art objects and even enjoyed Asian music. He had a gong on his front porch, and he would sit there and ring, and every now and again you'd see him out with a turban on his head sitting by the creek on his property chanting. Charles even dabbled in voodoo, which got the rumor mill stoked up that the members were, or murders were voodoo rituals and that went south, and investigators didn't think much of that one, though. But Louise Davis' shoemate was a mystery to investigators as well as about anybody who knew her or knew of her. She did have a family from Hendersonville, but she just didn't know, know people and didn't around the area at all, or did she? they know her. She was the oldest one of the victims, being 61 years old at the time of her death. She was born in Asheville in 1904. She was an intensely private person and a hard person to get to know. She just didn't even have a telephone, which actually wasn't that common back then. There wasn't any pictures or letters of from family or anybody else in her apartment, which was odd because she always carried a camera and was always snapping pictures. It makes you wonder if she even had any film in the camera, don't it? Few people heard her say, say it, but she, she did tell her family members about one friend she had back in another town named Ruby Taylor, and she would go get her mail at a, the Horseshoe Post Office, but lived in Asheville at the time of her death. Now, that's a 25 miles out of the way and was quite a run before interstates were built. In fact, Hendersonville, where the bodies were found, was another 10 miles away. Her driver's license showed the birth year as 1911, so I can't say that I blame her for that one. I had a few birthdays that I like to knock off, too. Folks over at the Horseshoe Post Office thought that she was probably about 45 years old, and a People that she worked with thought so, too. Some folks just look a whole lot younger than they are. That's one I'll never have a problem with or have to worry about. I look every day of my age, and I look like I took even longer getting there. She did have a habit of picking up strangers who she ran across that had car trouble, and when she did go out, she liked driving along the back roads. Who wouldn't like that, though? Police first thought that Louise may have been collateral damage because they just couldn't figure a way that she fit into the scene. They thought that she may have been messing around maybe on the side of the road and maybe picking blackberries, which she'd have been seen doing before, 
or maybe something along those lines and stumbled into the middle of a murder. But they couldn't find a shred of evidence that she was along any road picking anything. While the coroner was starting on the autopsies and investigators, they were still out searching the crime scene. The whole place started looking like the county fair was taking place right in the middle of the crime scene. It seemed like everybody within about three counties had to come by and take a look. In 1966, crime scenes were rarely blocked off in small towns, mostly because of the lack of training that the officers had. Most of the time, if and when there was a killing, it was pretty obviously done by the person who was standing there holding a smoking gun saying they did it when the police got there. Folks, along with the news media, were they were milling around in the middle of it all while police were trying to conduct an investigation. It was said that people were taking souvenirs, looking at the blood, pieces of hair, and even skull fragments still on the ground as they were walking all over top of it. Once the coroner was done, it was found that all three victims died from fractured skulls due to heavy blows to the head. Now, the puncture wounds were found on Charles and Louise that were made before they died, but uh, it was mostly death due to their head wounds. Back then, there wasn't any rape kits or DNA testing. Even though DNA was discovered and mapped back in 1953, nobody at the time really understood how it could play into solving crimes. Hendersonville Police Chief Bill Powers said that he didn't believe Louise had been raped, even though a part of a car bumper was inserted into, into her and left there. Sounds like he must have lost the key to his damn box, or it must have been empty because it sounds like to me he just didn't have one to give. But working from the crime scene back, investigators started piecing together where the victims had been and what they'd been up to in the days leading up to the murders. There had been several folks who saw Vernon's unmistakable white over blue 1962 Ford Fairlane around about town in the days before the murders. If you've ever seen one of those babies, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say unmistakable. Vernon was seen driving and Charles was in the front seat riding beside him. The last time they were seen was on Sunday, July 17th. On that day, Charles had called an employee mid-morning and asked him if he wanted to go out to lunch, but he had already made plans. Harley Shipman, who was Vernon's father, told investigators that he'd ate the late breakfast with his son, who was still at their home on Maple Street at around 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the same Sunday. Somebody who knew him said that Charles was at home around 2 o'clock as well because they remembered that he was talking on the phone with Vernon. Johnny Pistolis, owner of Johnny's Restaurant in Mountain Home, told investigators that both of them had come in and ate and that both of them were acting and smelled kind of like they'd had a little bit to drink. That was between 2.30 and 3.30 in the afternoon. And then went over to visit their friends at Almond's Antique Shop, which sat along old Asheville Highway. Along about the same time that was happening, Louise was seen leaving her apartment over in Asheville. Now, Vernon and Charles were then supposed to pick up Robert Amsden at the Echo Inn at 5.30 because they were all going to go over and have dinner around 6, but they never showed up. At about 6 o'clock, something else did happen, though. Ronnie Hollifield, who was the circulation manager for the Times News and who knew Vern Vernon very well because he saw him every day, ran across Vernon on a single dirt, a single lane dirt road called Evans Road. Ronnie said that he stopped at a hairpin curve and let Vernon go through it. 
He said Vernon was driving with Charles in the front seat on the passenger side, but didn't know who the two people in the back seat were. They were a woman with an odd smirky smile on her face and a man wearing sunglasses sitting next to her. Stick around, folks. I'll be right back. You're listening to the Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, after hearing that, the part that rang the bell, as it should have, was the man in the back seat. They thought that if they could identify him, they may very well have their killer. Ronnie described the man as 40 to 50 years old, white, with light-colored thin hair. He wore an outdated suit, blue, dark blue that is, with pinstripes. Now, as far as a man in 1966 describing an outdated suit, I don't know if he's talking about a zoot suit or what exactly he's talking about. But that wasn't the last time they were seen. They were seen again about 6.30 in the day, over, or later that day, on the Little River Road heading toward U.S. 25 South. This sighting was made by a tempo music employee named Calvert Hunt Jr. So I'd have to say that if anybody knew what they saw, it would be somebody that worked for him. Vernon's car was found on July 20th near his home on Maple Street. About nine months later, a youth named Dennis Waters, who lived in Hendersonville, told police that he and a few other teens had found Vernon's car before dark on the same Sunday. The victims were last seen in it. He said that they moved it to where it was when they found it on that Wednesday. They found the car and parked in the grass and weeds and briars all over on Ray Street near 7th Avenue, about a 15-minute drive from the crime scene. Now, I'd say there's some young'uns that got some explaining to do, wouldn't you? But Louise's car was found on Highway 191 near the French Broad River in a community called Rugby on July 20th. Her pocketbook was still hanging on the door handle, and the windows were all down and the keys still hanging in the ignition. So both cars were found before the bodies had even been found. And there was at least one missing persons report filed, but police were of the opinion that since Vernon and Charles were gay, they'd run off partying somewhere. I guess that's what they thought gay people did back in, just run off out of the wild blue yonder and party somewhere. There's nothing I can find that even after they found Vernon's car that the police changed their minds. Vernon's dad, Harley, said that they were still, well, while they were still missing, that he feared that his son had been grabbed up and murdered. Once the bodies were found, the police did make a serious investigation, uh, and he even though the crime scene was trampled over and run flat as a goat path by anybody that wanted to go down and make a murder scene in the evening out of the whole thing. So it wasn't a surprise that the case went ice cold, fairly short order. As it is with any case, you're only, you only got so much to work with to begin with, so uh, it, it ain't, if it ain't preserved properly or collected right, then once that runs out, it pretty much hit a brick wall as far as investigating anything's concerned. There have been a few suspects over the years. Of course, they're all dead now, and the best reason that the people could come up with was for the murder was maybe it was a murder for hire, uh, maybe a, a rampage of violent kidnappings or rapes that they just happened to get caught up in. The investigators felt like their most likely suspect was Edward Thompson Jr. Ed, as he was known, was 35 in 1966, and 
1968, he went on a rip-snorting crime spree where he kidnapped a total of nine people. By the time he was done, he'd raped five of them and killed two of them. He had folks all over the area so tore up that the Times News back in 1968, right in the middle of his crime spree, sent out a message that was supposedly from the police department that read, Any citizen who sees Edward Thompson Jr. may arrest him on sight or kill him if he resists without being subject to legal action. And just after that, and right in the middle of it all, Ed sent a reply to the Times News saying that every time I pick up your damn Jim Crow newspaper, you got my name in it. Well, I'm still around town, and I hope to get the chance to blast the daylights out of the whole crew. I'm really going to give somebody to write something about as soon as possible. But they finally got Ed, put him away for life. He died in the state penitentiary in Raleigh on July 16, 1989. Oddly enough, Ed was sure enough in Hendersonville at the time of the triple murder and is considered to be the murderer by the retired SBI agent uh, Charles Chambers, Chief Bill Powers, and former Henderson County Chief Deputy Neil Grissom. And that court TV episode of Haunted Evidence even got the ghost to tell him that Ed did it. Aside from the ghost that fingered Ed, if you talk to other law enforcement folks from the state penitentiary where Ed lived out his days, the surviving victims from his crime spree, as well as their families, you'll hear them tell you that Ed did it too. They said that Ed confessed to him when he committed that he committed the triple murders in Hendersonville back in 1966. But to top that off, there are no less than 20 similarities between what he did during his crime spree and what happened in the triple murder. For instance, he left the murdered man's body fully clothed while the woman's clothes were thrown all over the place like trash. Now, he always left the car near the crime scene and always left the keys hanging in the ignition. He liked to take people hostage and make them drive him around. And the coup de grace was that the highlight of his crime spree was almost to two years to the day after the triple murders. Then we got to look at the voodoo connection, of course. There was... That was pretty much a satanic panic back in the day in 1966, except that the voodoo panic started back in the early 1900s and lasted a whole lot longer than the satanic panic did. Seemed like folks back in would latch on to something like it was actually fact instantaneously, whether it was or not, and it took a long longer for them to get rid of it once they did. Ed just happened to be an African-American who was a follower of old African religion, folk religion, that is which led to the thought that it was why things were left the way they were at the triple murder scene, like the crutches from the form of a cross across the bodies laid out in a semicircle even. How African folk religion has anything to do with voodoo, which is actually a form of Christianity, is beyond me, but it does show how quick folks are are to tie voodoo into something just like they were the satanic panic back in the days. But Ed wasn't the only one who confessed, supposedly. Jim Burroughs, who was living in Hendersonville at the time and was, in fact, a friend of Vernon's, told WNC Tribune editor John Scholar that he was the one that did it. Jim was an obituary writer for the Asheville Citizen Times right up until a week before the murders, I guess because he had a flair for that kind of thing. He was fired for consistently showing up to work smelling like he'd just finished a VIP tour on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Of course, Chief Powers didn't hesitate to point out that he was a known homosexual acquaintance of Vernon Shipman and Charles Glass, 
apparently because he was more concerned about that than anything else at the time. Jim had called Citizen Times reporter Lewis Green sometime between July 18th and 22nd, telling him that there were uh, three prominent people missing. Lewis said that there was something that bothered him since he got that call. After all, folks already knew Vernon and Charles were missing, but nobody was tying Louise in with them. And the fact that Jim did that on that phone call turned out to be pretty blame disturbing to Lewis. Chief Powers said that there was no evidence against Jim, and most people interviewed didn't think the man was capable of murder, let alone three of them at the same time. So I guess that just got him struck off the list based on that. Paul Saxman, who was the last surviving suspect, was interviewed shortly after or before his death in 2006. It'd be kind of hard to interview him after his death, unless that's what they did on the uh, ghost show, wouldn't it? But Mr. Saxman, who was 40, at the time in 1966, denied any involvement in the murders plumb to the hilt, but he clearly had ties to Vernon and Charles. He was a chiropractor born and raised in Hendersonville, but was living in Indianapolis, Indiana at the time of the murders. Mr. Saxman's family owned the house next door to Vernon's, and Vernon had agreed to collect rent on the house and use the money to make the mortgage payment. Mr. Saxman found out in 1965 that the payments weren't being given to the bank. So what's he do? He up and accuses Charles Glass of keeping the money. Now, how he arrived at that when Vernon was the one that's supposed to have been collecting it was beyond me. I don't know how in the world they expect somebody to run off and party with that extra money, folks. I don't know what they're all upset about. But after the murders, the house went into foreclosure and was auctioned off a few months later right on the courthouse steps. The next occupants found a frog gig in the closet with a tine broke off of it. It was handed over to Henderson County Sheriff James Kilpatrick in February of 1967, who took it to the SBI. They tested the blood, but they couldn't determine whether it was human or frog. The report did state that it could, could have been a weapon used to create the holes in two of the victims' bodies. And I don't know how many of you have ever done the frog gigging, but it's really not uncommon at all to have a tine broke off your frog gig. Frogs like to sit right in amongst the rocks and try to look like one, so when you take a stab at one, sometimes you're going to hit a rock and break a tine off, so you got to be careful with that and realize that that's really not uncommon to have a two-pronged frog gig. There were a few other suspects who got honorable mentions in all of, the, all of it. The first was Harold Dean Hood, who was accused of kidnapping a gay man in Asheville in June of 1967. The man and Harold knew each other and were out drinking together. And as is often the case, the unidentified man said something that crawled Harold's nape, so he pounced on him, tied his hands up with towels, and threw him in his own car. Harold then took out a knife while tearing down the road. The man sat inside of him, sliced his own hand open, and slung blood all over the poor man's face, took his money, and left the poor man in the place near where the bodies of the murdered victims were found with his hands still tied and his feet now tied with his own belt. Harold then drove off with the man's car. The man finally untied himself, went straight and told police about the kidnapping. But by that time, Harold had left the state with a woman and they were still driving the victim's car. He was found in Baltimore, Maryland, where the woman's family lived and dragged back by SBI. After they got him back, he was sure enough thrown in the hot box and questioned about triple murder, which he denied any involvement in. 
telling investigators that he only knew Charles from a party he had attended back in 1962. That was all they got out of him, and so they had to let him go on that one because they had no other evidence. Then there was John Shadwick, who was a convicted fellow. A month after the murders, police said that the genius Mr. Shadrick assaulted a young man yelling at him that he'd kill three people and he'd just as soon kill him too if he didn't shut up and do what he was told to do. Of course, he was dragged in for questioning and nothing came of that either. One final suspect was Frank Myers. Frank was a friend of Vernon and Charles. He was supposedly seen with the three victims in Hendersonville on the day of the murders. Mr. Myers told police that they must have seen somebody else because he was in Lake Norman all day that day. There was no proof to do anything else with him either, so they just sent him stepping too. The original investigators on the case believed the killer was Ed Thompson. Today, all the actual evidence collected from the crime scene, including the broken frog gig up and just disappeared somewhere along the way. Lead SBI investigator Gary Satterfield was the one who personally put it all in his car and drove it over to the SBI labs in Raleigh like he was driving Nature Boy Rick Flair on a night on the town. But it was kept there until July 14, 1969, when boxes containing the most important pieces were handed over to Sheriff Kilpatrick. There were three boxes that contained the bumper jacks from Vernon and Louise's car, along with what was likely a murder weapon, which was an iron shaft that was found at the scene laying across Vernon's neck. Then there was Charles' crutches that, don't forget the frog gig, folks, it was there too. Once the sheriff signed the paperwork taking charge of the boxes, he drove off into the sunset with the evidence, which was never seen again. One former detective with the sheriff's department did say that the evidence was probably somewhere in the landfill because, uh, you know, it wound up there because suspects, are, when they're dead, you can't try them for murder. That sure enough might be true, but it would go a long way with folks to know who did it, especially with any family members that might still be wondering who did it and why. Almost 57 years later now, after it happened, if you drive by the area where the bodies were found, folks, it'll look like nothing ever happened. And that's a sad thing. Hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that needed to be told. And if you have, please rate and review the podcast. And don't forget to follow us, please, and to get notified of new episodes. Come join us on Facebook, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast group, where we talk about everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian murder mystery and legend, and I'll see you then.